Good morning. If you have a Bible, let's go with me to James chapter 1. Book of James chapter 1. Uh, we are four weeks into our series called Enjoying Jesus Through Habits of Grace. Our typical mode of preaching is walking through books of the Bible, usually verse by verse or section by section, if you will, depending on how low we're flying to the text. Um, usually we spend time doing that. That's usually our mode of preaching, but for the summer we've decided to kind of step out of a book, having just finished up uh, about 30 weeks in the book of Acts, and we're going to spend the summer looking at habits of grace, three particularly. The first one being enjoying Jesus through God's Word. See, we cannot, as we, as we opened up the series, we, we talked about how we, we, we cannot twist God's arm to give us grace, but we can put ourselves along the stream where He has promised to give grace. We can't force Him to do it, and God doesn't, is not limited to giving grace in these certain places, but He has certainly promised to walk these paths, to, to, to make these streams where His grace is given. And we talked about how, in the first week we talked about it's, it's His grace and our effort that they are both wonderfully go together. It is both God who works in us to will for His good pleasure, and it's us who are working out our salvation at the same time. It's, it's a both and, Philippians. Paul talks about in Philippians. And we talked about, we um, quoted, I quoted John Piper the first week, says, if God is your gold, then God will be your gladness. And how we enjoy the Lord when we forsake these other things that have grabbed our attention. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that even this week. And then we talked about this first stream, really, His voice, His word. That we are shaped by His voice and his, that His voice also leads to eternal life. As Jesus said in John 16 and 17 and and then last week we looked at how the Holy Spirit must be involved in our study of the Scriptures. We're helpless without. We need the Spirit to help us understand the Scriptures, certainly, but, but to apply it to, for the, 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 the word of truth to take root in our hearts, the Spirit has to be the one to do that. And so this sermon today and this book of James should be understood in the light of all of that in the sense that we... As we talk about the idea of being doers of the Word, that in order to be doers of the Word, we are utterly dependent on God's grace to be doers of the Word. So this week, we want to consider again, one more time, the stream of God's voice, where His promise of grace is present. Let's read James 1, 22-25. James says this, But be doers of the Word... And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word this morning, Father, may your spirit do what he is sent here to do, and that is to help us see the glory of the gospel, particularly here in the stream of your voice. Father, anything that I say is not accurate or not helpful, may it be wiped away from our memories. May we hear your voice, and it's in your Son's name. Amen. So let's start with this question. How is it that someone could hear the Word, meaning the, the Scriptures, week in, week out, maybe even daily, and not do it? That's really the question. I mean, that's the, that's the implied question by James in this passage. How is it that someone could hear the word week in, week out, day in, day out, 
and not do it. If I can make a pastoral comment here, it astounds me so often how the word is taught and taught oftentimes, particularly in our context here, with great specificity in its application. And then people who hear it and hear it and hear it fail to do it. Sometimes months after it's taught, sometimes even days, weeks, or even hours after the Word, God's voice is taught and heard. Now, as we approach this text, we have to understand that he's not just talking about a failure in application. Oh, oh, I'll do better the next time. What James is saying, and we have to get the weightiness of this from the very beginning. What James is saying is that it's not just a failure of application, but it's actually a, if you're not a doer of the word, he says what? That you're actually deceived. Indeed, you're actually deceiving yourself. You are deceived. Now, what's he mean by deceived? It's not just Oh, well, I, I guess it's not true. What, what, he, what he means is that you believe something that isn't true. You hold fast to a reality that is not indeed reality. You're holding tight to something, believing something that is indeed not true. And one of the things we have to understand about deception is when you're deceived, how do you know that you're deceived? It's kind of like uh, asleep. How do you know... When you're asleep. Does anybody here know when you're asleep? Oh, I'm sleeping right now. This is awesome. No, if you're thinking that, you're not able to fall asleep, right? Now, you can think, oh, man, I'm having a nice restful few moments with my eyes closed. But you're not thinking, oh, I'm asleep. The same is true when you're deceived. I mean, right? if you were deceived, you would go, well, I'd... Well, the light has been shown, right? And I'm not deceived anymore. I don't want to believe that. I want to believe this because I don't want to believe a lie. I want to believe the truth. And so you, what he says is you're actually in a position of helplessness. That there's a, there's a reality to your existence right now where you need someone from the outside to help with your deception. So the first thing I want us to see this morning as we work through James here is that faith in his voice, faith in God, and more generally speaking, but faith in his voice and doing his works are inseparable. These things cannot be taken apart. Now I get it, you have some churches and denominations that, that teach that works is some measure of works is how we get our salvation. That if we do a certain number of things, if we avoid doing certain activities that will be found favorable in God's eyes. I know that that teaching is out there and very prevalent. And then on the other, and particularly on the rise, I think in the past couple decades, has been this teaching that it doesn't matter what you do, that your actions don't have any bearing whatsoever on salvation. But here, James seems to link that these two things are inseparable, that they they go together. Now, the way we would understand those is important, that one flows from the other. But for right now, just hang on to that thought for a second. The first thing I want you to see is that faith in His voice and doing His works are inseparable. That doesn't mean that they both have equal weight in obtaining salvation. That's not what I'm saying. For it's by faith, by grace through faith that we are saved, that Paul talks about. But the result of that, by grace through faith, is works. For James says, this faith that you have is not really faith if it's not resulting in works. So let's talk about that for a moment. First of all, faith without works is dead. James will say this in chapter 2. He says that if you're not a doer of the word, you're deceived. What are you deceived about? What's the deception concerning? Again, James chapter 2, verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is very clearly saying that, <clears throat> that if you are not a doer of the word, 
what you are deceived concerning is the legitimacy of this thing you think you have that you call faith. You think you have faith, but what James is saying later is that indeed it's actually dead. That that faith is not alive. It's, it's as though you don't have it. Indeed, it's no good. It's, it's not legitimate. That's James' point. Now, we have, we have to be careful because we could also think that we're doing good works, right? So I have to kind of dispel this for just a moment, that you could think, well, I have good works, and so therefore my faith is real. So let's take a moment and think about, okay, what is that good works, and do I think I have good works? How do I assess that good works? And we could spend a lot of time teaching on this, but just on a very basic understanding, what are the works that we're talking about at their very fundamental level? How do I know when I'm doing enough works, if you will, that would show or give confidence in a legitimate faith or a faith that is alive? Jesus clearly says that to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then let's step up maybe a layer from that and go to Galatians 5, verse 19 through 24. Paul is great here. He gives us both. He gives us the works of the flesh, and then he gives us the works of faith, or the works of the Spirit. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. For those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We don't have time to unpack all those things. Suffice it to say, for now, that We clearly, all of us, have evidence of the flesh in us often, if at the very least, idolatry. But he says that this work of the Spirit, and what's the Spirit do? We've talked about this already. The Spirit is what brings faith to life. The Spirit is what interacts with our souls. And the result of this is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And he says we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we think about this being doers of the Word, what's it mean to have these works, to be doers of the Word? I think it's very hard. It means this idea of pursuing godliness, to have a relentless pursuit of godliness, to image God, to reflect Him where we go. Let's go back to Genesis. That's the the command that they're given to be fruitful and multiply, to, to subdue the earth, to fill the earth with the image of God, to fill the earth with godliness. So these works that we're talking about at their very root are a striving to know Him and His ways, a repenting when we fail, a trusting in the Lord Jesus. You will fight the good fight, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now listen, this will not happen. If we're talking about the streams of grace, this will not happen by reading our Bible simply once a week or isolating ourselves from community or checkmarking your Bible intake each day or by justifying our sin every time we're confronted in it. That's not fruit of being a doer of the Word. Instead, it's having a life filled with joyfulness, peacefulness, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This doing of the Word that James is saying is the result of this real faith is a lot more than just not smoking, drinking, getting tattoos, or being sure to vote red. Being a doer of the Word is a lot more than just that. 
It's this internal reality. Certainly, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is, you say you've not murdered your brother, but I'm saying if you've hated him in your heart, right? So the, the expectation, this being a doer of the word, this having works, that's a result of this legitimate faith, is more than just these external appearances. But just like faith without works is dead... Works without faith is deadly. So just as faith without works is dead, works without faith is deadly. So you ask the question, is it enough for me to just do good works? To just do works? So if I have Christian works, should I consider my faith real? So let's talk about this for a second. Just because you read your Bible, sit in here on Sunday mornings, call me Pastor Matt, serve in the nursery, or even lead a ministry in this church, or another church for that matter, or you've been doing Christian things for decades. That doesn't mean that your faith is real. Listen, you and I are really, really, really good at doing righteous, seemingly righteous acts in the flesh. We're really good at doing things that look right, that seem right, maybe even feel right, but indeed are done in the flesh. Listen, if it's not enough to say, I have works, so therefore my faith is real. See, that's, that's, the, that's the premise of Part of the premise in approaching the text is really important. If it's not enough to say, I have works, so therefore my faith is real, then our approach to hearing God's voice in the Scriptures must be to walk away with more than simply a to-do list of application every time. But if our If I can simply look at my life and go, okay, well, I'm doing these Christian things, or I'm not doing these non-Christian things, my faith is real. Then, my approach to the Scriptures should be to walk away every time. I mean, you'd be foolish to not walk away every time with a list of do this and don't do this. Do this and don't do this. Do this and don't do this. But if it's more than that, if if I can't just look at my works and go, okay, well, I, my faith is real. Then maybe that task, or solely looking to the Scriptures in that way, is not the wisest. I mean, listen, I, for much of my life, that has been my approach to the Scriptures. To go to the scriptures and look for a list of do's and don'ts. Now certainly there are lists of do's and don'ts, and they are important. They have, they're incredibly important. As a matter of fact, they're vitally important. We need them. But if that's all that we approach the scriptures with, or even the fundamental reason for why we approach the scriptures, then we are missing the point. We will not indeed be doers of the word by faith. We will be simply imitating a faith, deceiving ourselves that we have a faith, even in the midst of doing what feels like righteous acts. But this is not the way we approach God's word. And hang with me for a second as we talk about how is it that we actually approach God's word, and then we're going to kind of build up from there. True works undefiled works, righteous works are not and cannot be done without faith. There must be, hear me, here's the point, and I'm going to push on this hard today. There must be the right motivation behind these works. The right thing that is moving your heart to do these works. Listen, if we believe that works alone prove my faith is real, then we will approach the Scriptures looking, again, for this to-do list. But this is nothing more than legalism. 
Listen, let me ask you this question. What happens when you can't find a to-do for the way you are feeling, or you can't find a command forbidding this desire you have over here? What's going to happen then? You kids, you can't find your to-do list. You're going to go do what you want. You're going to go do what you want. We're, we're even awesome at ignoring those around us who are actually helping to show us how the Scriptures actually do speak beyond the simple to-do list that we're looking for. What happens when we can't find this explicit imperative for this aspect of my life? We'll go do what we want. Finding this list of to-dos and don'ts, as important as, as it is, understood the wrong way is nothing more than legalism. It's us trying to prove to ourselves, to God, to the cosmos, to the people around us that we are righteous on our own. And that is incredibly damaging. It's damaging to your soul. It's damaging to the people around you. It's damaging to the gospel. In the supposed Christian church today, at least in the West, and many of the churches that many of us grew up in, here's was functionally the way it worked. Get your salvation through Jesus, right? You need the gospel. You need redemption through the blood of Jesus. Faith in that. Saved. Now, you better look a certain way or your faith isn't real. And so now here's your list of do's and don'ts. Here's your list. Don't do this. Make sure you do this. No wonder we have churches full of lost people at worst and infant Christians at best. David Mathis said this, this is unhelpful and that it overlooks the more complex nature of the Christian life and how true and lasting change happens in a less straightforward way than we may be prone to think. This, this idea that you and I, oh, I believe I have faith in Jesus. Okay, good. Got that done. Glad that's in the past. We're good to go. I'll need that when I get to heaven, right? Now, between that point and this point, where's my list of do's and don'ts? It's not that simple. Like, it's not that straightforward. It's rather simple, actually, but it's not that straightforward. I like what Mathis says. I'm going to quote David Mathis. He wrote a book called Habits of Grace that we are referring to a bunch over the summer. He made this point. Most of life is spontaneous. 99%, I'm sure that was a statistic made up, but 99% of our daily decisions we just make without reflection. We just make them. We tend to, I, I, was, I was lamenting actually over this with my wife last night, how often we just make decisions based on what feels good right now, this second. Right now, this second, what feels best to me right now. But, but the reality is we actually don't even reflect on that. It's just overflowing from inside. The reality is, he, he goes on, our lives flow from the kind of person we are, the kind of person we've become, rather than some succession of timeouts for reflection. This is not how we live our lives. We don't live out of all of these moments of reflections. It's rather spontaneous. Paul understood this. Romans 12.2. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, Paul doesn't ask that God give us simple obedience to a clear to-do list, but that He give us wisdom to discern God's will as we encounter life's many choices coming at us without pause. Do you understand? All day long is just one long succession of choices to be made 
in a rather spontaneous way. And so your list of to do and not to do is going to really rather do you no good when it comes to deciding how should I respond to my spouse right now when they just said something that I don't particularly like. Or how, how am I going to speak to my child when they just did this that is altogether unholy? How am I going to respond to them? I've got a split second, and I respond. Paul, in Colossians 1, verse 9 through 10, says this, And so from the way we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in, a spiritual, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, another example, rather than a specific list of actions, as important as that is, Paul wants to see us formed into the kind of persons who are able to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You can reference Ephesians 5. But to discern what is pleasing to the Lord and then act in light of it. Remember Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let me add uh, let me help explain a little bit further what he means. The mouth speaks, the hand does, the emotions flow. Out of the overheart, overflow of the heart, these things. So out of the overflow of the inner person comes everything that we say, do, and feel. Let me pause and narrate for a second. This is why we spend so much time talking about who we are in Christ as a church talking about the idols we worship instead of Christ. Why? Because we become what we worship. We become what our gaze is fixed upon. And you can't talk about loving Christ supremely without talking about the competing loves in your life. Without talking about the competition of loving this or loving this versus loving Christ. We become what we worship. We become why? You ever thought? You ever learn in um, drivers? Uh, I mean, I know it's been a long time for driver's education class for for many of us in here. But maybe some of you that's just recently gotten your license, you can tell me later if I'm wrong. But I remember from my class they said the side of you, you will drive in the direction you're looking, right? So if you start to look to the right, you're going to start to veer to the right. If you look to the left, you're going to veer to the left. Whatever has our gaze is that which we will become. You see, the inner man has to be changed. It's where change must take place. This is where true works of faith come from. Listen, our hands can manufacture things that look like faith. Particularly if you've been around the church long enough. You know which way you're supposed to talk. You know which places you're not supposed to go. You know you're not supposed to watch rated R movies. You know, like, you know those things that make you feel like your faith is real. But true works come from faith. And this is what James literally means when he says to be word doers. It's this Doing of the word that comes from a faith that is real. So the, the main thing I want you to see at this first juncture is that faith and works are inseparable. Faith without a pursuit of godliness, a whole life, wholehearted pursuit of godliness, James says, is fake. But also works without faith driving them is legalism. But instead, who we are inside is what drives our decisions. And so we must be, as Paul talks about, transformed from the inside out. That faith has to be real, and that's where good works come from. Matter of fact, they necessarily come. So again, the question is, how is it they were actually transformed, right? How, that, that's the question we need to ask next, is how is it they were actually transformed then from the inside out? 
How is it that we actually swim in God's voice and be transformed? Listen, God's voice is for seeing God's grandeur. It's for seeing His glory. God's voice is for seeing His glory. I'm going to flesh this out. Listen, the answer to that question is right here in this little passage from the book of James. How is it that we are transformed from the ends? Let's read verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man, listen to this, who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. What's up with this mirror thing? What is he talking about? What's this have to do with works and faith? First of all, he's contrasting. Here's what I've got to do. I've got to kind of define for you three pieces here and then give you the point. So I'm going to give you kind of three pieces that I'm going to define for you. The first is this. What is he contrasting? What is he contrasting? He's contrasting what is looked at, first of all, mirror versus the perfect law. A mirror versus the perfect law. He's contrasting that. Second of all, he's contrasting how the mirror is looked at. So, what's looked at, and then how it's looked at. Looking and leaving versus gazing intently. Third, the result of looking. So, what is looked at? how the people looked at it, and three, the result of looking. Forgetting versus actually doing. Forgetting versus doing. Now, to give this caveat first, this has nothing to do with finding resources in ourselves to become obedient, active doers. That's not James's point. James's point is not this mirror and go look inside and you can find the power to do the things that, that's garbage. James is dependent on the life-generating power of the Word of Truth by the work of the Spirit. That's where James is at. I don't have time to give that context. Go read James and the rest of the Bible. Here's what happens. Here's what Paul saying, or James is saying. In hearing the Word, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting uh, a commentary here. In hearing the Word, one gets a glimpse of truth about oneself. But failure to then do the word makes the encounter, this is key, purely momentary and purely external. A mere reflection, not the real thing. So one hears it, but then walks away. And what that reveals in in the forgetting is that the encounter had no eternal, internal value. It was momentary and external, a reflection, not the real thing. And then second of all, to forget. The idea of like to forget is not, uh, it refers not just to failing to remember, but to allowing something to escape by inattention or neglect. It also means to immediately forget the idea here. So let me, let me kind of summarize that. It means, what James means is it to immediately forget because you neglected to look well. To forget immediately because you neglected to look faithfully. Meaning to look with intent. To look for the right reasons. To, to gaze. To study. Because you failed to do that, you walked away and immediately forgot. James is saying this, You are not doers of the word because you, one, have forgot what you have seen, and two, you forgot because you neglected to look faithfully. Right. That was the one of three things that I need you to understand in order to put this piece together. The next two are rather short. Now, where are we to look? Again, that's the next thing he's contrasting. Where are we to look? He says the perfect law, 
the law of freedom. What's he mean by that? We just look at the law. Isn't that a, bunch, a list of a bunch of do's and don'ts? This is what it means to be the people of God. This is what it, well, yes and no. If you look at the context, and particularly of New Testament, but even of James, this idea of the perfect law, the law of freedom, is the same idea as the word of truth, the gospel. You say, whoa, whoa, how did you jump from there to the gospel? Listen, this perfect law, the law of freedom, Jesus kept perfectly, and he shows us the perfection in there and the freedom of the law that you and I cannot keep. We're not that good. We needed someone else to keep it. And so James is not saying, look to the old covenant and gaze there. Instead, he's looking, look to the one who kept it. Look to the one who did it when you and I could not. This idea of looking to the perfect law, the law of freedom, is this idea of looking to the gospel, the good news of salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The law serves to bear witness to the necessity of faith in the gospel. Again, it is above all, the gospel is above all the story of Jesus' fulfillment of the law and the new life that comes from that fulfillment. That brings freedom. So where are we to look? Where is he saying to gaze? To look intently upon the good news of the gospel. Third thing here. How are we to look? So again, what's he? Where are we to look? How are we to look? The word persevere is the idea of looking into the law continually. Like, he's not, he's not saying, go, go back with me to there. He says, For he looks himself uh, and goes away and once forgets what he was like, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, he's not saying perseveres in doing the law. What he's saying is perseveres in looking at it. Who perseveres in looking at it. Perseveres in gazing upon the gospel. This person will be no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. So how are we to look? We're to look with perseverance. So James' idea is that you're continually looking upon the gospel. Continually gazing upon the gospel. Let me quote. The one who looks at a mirror may briefly see the reflection of a human being created in God's image. But the one who steadfastly gazes into God's law sees the much clearer image of God constantly and remembers because it is firmly implanted in his or her mind. The person who perseveres in looking. So here's, all right, so that's one, two, three. Now let me give you the kind of the point, the overall point. The one who looks at a mirror forgets what he or she looks like, partly because the image is unclear, thinking in terms of ancient mirrors. They did not have these mirrors like we have today. But also partly because the image is so rarely encountered. The one who looks at a mirror and forgets what he or she looks like is partly because the image is so rarely encountered. Encountered. Now, I know that that seems like unrealistic, right? Because we all look in mirrors all the time. Indeed, someone walks by and you're like, man, he didn't look in the mirror this morning. Everyone looks in the mirror all the time. But what he's talking about here is someone who looked, listen, they didn't have mirrors like we had, like we have. They didn't have them all their place. It was actually, indeed, it was rare that someone would look in a mirror. That's James's point, is that you don't encounter what's in the mirror enough. You don't look long enough. But the one who looks intently into the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yes, that includes seeing God in the law, 
But the one who looks intently into the word of truth, the gospel of Christ, the very Lord of our souls, the one who gazes on the incredible glory of God on display in the gospel, the one who is satisfied to meditate on these thoughts all the day long, the person who can look into the mirror forever without stopping, the one who is satisfied and has nothing else he desires, has nothing else he longs for, and the person that has more enjoyment contemplating the thoughts of the gospel of the gospel, the thoughts of the gospel for being found safe in the Father's arms because of the work of the gospel in their life. That person, only that person, is changed from the inside out. That person has faith that will produce works. That person has righteous works for they are born from this faith. You see, enjoying God's grandeur leads to joyful obedience. Let me quote John Piper here. A godly life is lived out of an astonished heart. A heart that is astonished at grace. We go to the Bible to be astonished, to be amazed at God and Christ and the cross and grace and the gospel. We go to the Bible to be astonished. Listen, the kind of application most important to pursue when we go to encounter God's Word is such astonishment. That's what we go after. We press the Scriptures to your soul. Pray for the awakening of our affections. As Mathis says, bring the Bible home to your heart. That's James' point. James' point is you will be a doer of the word if you are astonished by the gospel. It means if you are captivated by the gospel. Why? Because we become what we worship. And if that has captivated our worship, we will become like that. We will swerve in that direction. As we're freshly captivated by the grandeur of our God and his gospel, we become, again, what we behold. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, listen to this, and we all with unveiled face beholding what? The glory of the Lord. Beholding. What's he mean? Looking. Gazing upon. Captivated by. Astonished by. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. Swerving in that direction. The same image from what? One degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Listen, this is why it is so necessary that we worship God exclusively. Totally and every moment of every day. Why? First and foremost, because He deserves it. Two, because you and I become what we worship. And what we worship for just a moment today will become just a few moments tomorrow. And what becomes a few moments tomorrow will become a few minutes the next day. We become what we worship. The kind of application most important to pursue in encountering God then is such astonishment of God. As we come away from our Bible intake with a more satisfied soul which imparts a flavor, it imparts a demeanor to our lives and decision-making that affects everything. Like it affects everything in such a way that you and I can't help it. 
It changes us from the inside in such a way that we can't help it. I mean, that's astonishing to me. That, that we could go to the Word in faith, and we'll get to that in a second, that piece in a second, but go to the Word in faith and that God by the Spirit could change us from the inside so that in those moments of spontaneity, I would actually choose without reflection the right thing. That's astonishing. I've spent many time, if I give a pastoral reflection here, I spend so much time in counseling, informal counseling settings, just absolutely flummoxed by the decisions that are made. And the only thing I can walk away going is it's because the heart is captivated with the grandeur of something else. Listen, you can tell where the satisfaction of someone's soul is by the outward decisions they make. You see, and so what flows in a decision, a decision that we make, what flows in the decision making is the fruit in keeping with whatever my heart is astonished by. Again, which direction do we veer? We veer in the direction of that which has our gaze. So we will bend and twist and mold and ignore and be blind to all the things that are right in order to keep our gaze fixed on whatever it is that we are delighting most in. Why? Because we think that our hope is there, that our fulfillment is there, because that we can't live without it. And the person who is most satisfied in the Lord makes decisions in opposition to the flesh. And, and, and I would argue, just, just from an experiential standpoint here, that you will feel that tension every day. You should feel that tension every day. Gaze fixed on the Lord, making decisions in keeping with the Lord, but I've got this wrestle over here with my flesh. I want this over here, though. I want this over here. I want this over here. I want this over here. So, enjoying God's grandeur leads to joyful obedience. Let me quote Mathis. Coming to the Scriptures to see and feel makes for a drastically different approach than primarily coming to do. Now listen, what I don't mean is just to come to the Scriptures to feel good. I was coming to the Scriptures to get my feel-good moment. A lot of us approach the Scriptures that way. But coming to the Scriptures to love and be loved by the Father. That's drastically different than I just want this thing in my life, so how can I go to the Scriptures to feel good about this thing? Or I don't like my circumstances right now. So how can I go feel good about my circumstances? That's different than approaching the Scriptures to know the Father, to be loved by the Father, to feel loving toward the Father. Listen, the Bible, again another quote, the Bible is gloriously for us, but it is not mainly about us. It is mainly about the Father. It's about who we see, not for simply what we must do. Lastly, joyful obedience leads to greater blessings. So what's, what's James' point? Where does these good works come from? Listen, most of those decisions you and I have very little control over in the sense that we stop, reflect, make the decision. Most decisions we make day in and day out come as an overflow from our hearts and we make without much thought or restraint. Whatever feels good right now, I'm going to say it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to buy it, I'm going to wait for it, I'm going to 
look at it. Whatever feels good for the moment. Whatever we are fixed upon, our gaze is fixed upon. James is saying that, that we, that we have to look deeply and intently and purposefully and carefully. We have to persevere in looking at the gospel, at the good news of Jesus Christ. And our life will begin to swerve in that direction. The decisions that naturally, that we make without much thought will begin to reflect that which we're worshiping. See, joyful obedience not only comes from a gaze upon the grandeur, the glory of God, but also what comes, and we can't ignore this in the book of James, is that joyful obedience leads to greater blessing. Look at 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Do you see that? There is blessing assured for the doer of the word. There is blessing for the doer of the word. Obviously, we have to be careful. It doesn't mean nice jets and fancy cars and nice houses and lots of money, or it doesn't even mean uh, successful kids or a perfect marriage. It's not necessarily the blessings that he is. But what we see is that there is a promise of blessing as we put ourselves in the stream of doing God's Word, of hearing Him and doing it. There's a promise of grace and blessing there. The one who has genuine faith, captivated by the glory of God that leads to righteous works. The one who looks long into the gospel, gazes upon the graciousness of our God. The one who gazes upon the perfect law, right? Jesus, His Son, keeping the law because we could not. And Jesus, His Son, demonstrating what it is to be blessed by keeping the law because He was the only one able to do it. You see, you and I fail at doing the Word all the time. We fail at works all the time, but where we fail most often and most fundamentally is we fail to fix our eyes on the good news that our Father has rescued us sinners from the path to destruction through His Son who kept the perfect law perfectly. Now sure, we need the examples and the lists of what to do and what not to do, but you need to think of those as like training wheels. That those are the results of what happens because of legitimate faith in the, in the Father and His good gospel. And then these lists of to-dos and don'ts are training wheels. Don't murder. That's a training wheel. What's Jesus mean? Don't have anger in your heart. How can you and I have a life without anger in our hearts towards our brother? That's not something you and I can make happen or make not happen. Only a gaze upon the forgiveness of the gospel could lead you to forgive your brother and not be angry at him. This person who gazes longingly, intently, walks away not forgetting what he has heard. This person walks away doing works that are real, that are true. This one walks away, and what naturally flows from them is loving, like love, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-controlled, righteous anger. Listen, in all that this person does, the gospel permeates their life because this person is astonished by God. Because they're captivated by God, they're able to discern what is good and pleasing to the Lord. What is good and pleasing to the Lord? And what's James say about that person? That's the narrow, like who he is saying 
who he's talking about. That person is blessed. That person. It's not, it's, it's that person. This is the pathway to flourishing. And not just the pathway to flourishing for you and I, this is the pathway to flourishing for all people. Because all people need the good news of the gospel of Jesus, that they have someone who died for their sins, that their creator loved them so much he sent Jesus to die for them. They all need something glorious enough to bear the weight of their gaze and worship. Joshua 1.8 says this, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Do you hear that? Meditate on it day and night. Gaze upon it all the time. So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. David says in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is what? Within my heart. How did it get in David's heart? By the Spirit, through gazing. God wrote it on his heart. How does he know it? He is gazing upon it. He's reading it. He's listening to it. He didn't have a podcast, but he would have if it would have been available. Spending time memorizing, meditating upon it, dwelling upon it, praying through it, writing it down. Looking intently. So listen, when Bible reading first aims at astonishment, Mathis says, meaning meditation and worship, right? It's captivated us. When Bible reading is that, it works first on our hearts and changes our person, which then appropriately prepares us for application. And application of God's words to our lives prepares us for God's blessing of our souls. So listen to this, this last thing. So applying God's words to our lives is not only an effect of His grace, right? Applying God's word well to our lives is an effect of God's grace. It's a result of God's grace in our lives, right? We are astonished at his grace, and what comes from that is works of righteousness. It's that we have genuine faith that that's real, that his gospel is real, and I believe it. It's what comes from that is genuine works. I'm astonished by his grace, and what comes from that is works. But not only is that the reality, not only is applying God's words to our lives an effect of his grace, but it's also a means to more grace. It's a blessing to be a doer of the word who understands and lives by faith that the gospel is real. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would set our hearts and minds free. I know we've been set free. For those who are your children, you have set us free from bondage. Bondage to the gaze to the astonishment of other things other than you, to the worship of things other than you. So, Father, I pray that you would help us in this moment, though, to realize that sometimes we enter back into that slavery, that we enter back into that bondage where we, where we think there is grace awaiting for us. If I can just have this... instead of realizing that 
there is grace for us in the good news of the gospel. Matter of fact, there's immeasurable grace that you will lavish upon us for all of eternity, Paul says in Ephesians. And Father, I pray that if there's anybody here that, that knows of God and thinks that their faith is real, but maybe is realizing for the first few moments of their lives that maybe I'm deceived. Maybe I'm deceived by my works. Maybe I actually think I'm saved or been saved or been saved for a long time. But indeed, the works of my hands have just been works of the flesh. Even though they might look great to everybody else, I know deep down that they come from the flesh. And I don't go to the Scriptures looking to know you. I go to the Scriptures looking for a to-do list. Or my love for you, Father, looks more like a wink when I need something from you. Father, I pray that wherever hearts may be in this room, I trust that your Spirit is powerful enough, effective enough to do what needs to be done in their hearts. So, Father, I pray as we sing these next couple songs, Father, that your Spirit would have its way, that we would believe, all of us, whether we've been Christians or not, or maybe now for the first moment in time ever, Father, may we believe that we are saved by grace through faith in the work of your Son, Jesus, to die on the cross, to pay the payment for our sins, to bear the wrath that we could not bear and to live the righteous life that we could not live, and so in the washing of that blood be saved. May we all believe that with greater vigor, and may we gaze into that truth all the time. May we go to the Scriptures every day looking to know our God, to be astonished at you, And so be changed from the inside out, having works that are righteous because we have a faith that is real. Father, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen.